Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Hello and welcome everyone to chapter eight of the dubious book of famous deeds, the history podcast that looks at the world through the eyes of the Victorians by way of the highly suspect 1889 book, The Pictorial Treasury of Famous Men and Famous Deeds. My name's Paul Bates, I'm your host. I'm enjoying plenty of coffee today, thanks to a generous contribution from listener Ramona Wu of Tacoma, Washington. Ramona, thank you so much. That's so kind of you to reach out and make such a generous contribution. Uh, Those coffees were amazing. I hope everything is happy and safe for you in the Pacific Northwest. If anybody else ever feels like supporting me in the work that I do in producing and recording and researching this podcast, you can do so at buymeacoffee.com slash famous.deeds. It's a very easy way to support creators online. You don't have to sign in or make an account. I'm not saying you have to, but if you want to, your support is appreciated. And honestly, it means the world to me that you're out there enjoying the show. Okay, this is a great episode. This chapter is all about Sir William Ferguson, the Scottish surgeon And it is an opportunity to learn all you need to know about surgery in the 19th century. Surgery today can feel like a nightmare, but at least you're asleep for that nightmare. Not in the 19th century. There's some wild stories. There's going to be murder. There's going to be blood. It's everything you want on a hot late summer's day. And let's welcome our guest. She's a comedian. She is an actor. She is an alumna of the Second City. She is immensely funny, and she is also my social media spirit animal. Please welcome Stacy McGonagall. <laughs> yeah, you you think you're like a little thirsty devil too? A hundred percent, Stacy. This podcast—it was either this podcast or an OnlyFans for me. Yes. Yes. No, but when I'm like confused as to what to do on social media, because it's changing and I thought oh, yeah. I knew everything and now I don't, I look to Stacey McGonigal <laughs> and I see what's going on on her IG stories because you're always on top of it. You know, uh, there's a there's a gift that comes with living alone and having uh, nothing going on and <laughs> needing to know if you are invisible. Uh, and that is social media. So thank you. But I don't, I don't know. I don't think I know anyone who is as comfortable as just sharing their day uh, as you are on on your stories, and it's comforting to me. Is it? Yeah. That actually that means the world because sometimes I I wa- I'll look at them back and I go have a shower, go do something, <laughs> <laughs> like go work for a charity. Like stop talking about Rachel Ray. Are, are you ready to jump in? I love it. Yes. Okay, here we go. Chapter 8. Sir William Ferguson. 
Sir William Ferguson was born at Prestonpans in East Lothian on the 20th of March, 1808. Prestonpans, Stacey, is in Scotland. It's a small oh. fishing town just east of Edinburgh. You know, that's where my family is from. No, really? Yeah, we're Scottish. Oh, yeah. Ah, okay. Okay. Now, I, I looked up Preston Pans on Wikipedia, and they have, like, um, you know, they have notable residents throughout history. Okay. W- uh, William Ferguson does not show up on that list. <laughs> you know, then he sounds like a McGonagall. I'll tell you who does, though. Who does is a man named John Fian, who was a purported sorcerer executed in 1591. <laughs> <laughs> a purported sorcerer. He was just like, you guys, I swear to God, these, this stuff works in my shed. He claimed to had done a bunch of sorcery, uh, and then when they just before they executed him, he said he made it all up. Yeah, well, okay, it's starting to track near the end of his life. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I, I, no, 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 no. Would you believe you guys, you... <laughs> that I made out made all of that up? I was sick. Here we go. We continue. Okay. Uh, so William Ferguson, he was educated at the High School of Edinburgh and mm-hmm. passed from the school into the university with the intention of ultimately practicing the law. But he soon abandoned this intention in favor of the more congenial pursuit of surgery in which he was destined to become preeminently distinguished. You know what this sounds like? You know when you're starting off in comedy and you have no um, credits or really done anything and someone goes, do you have a bio? (laughs) You go, well... I was supposed to go to U of T for English, and when that didn't work out, (laughs) I dipped a toe. (laughs) Well, okay, so yes, he almost went into law, but he found his true love, surgery, and that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about Sir William Ferguson, the famous Scottish surgeon. We're going to learn about the lives of surgeons in the mid-Victorian age. Ooh, I'm excited. This is like Grey's Anatomy, but with like prettier clothes. That's absolutely right. Did you know that Grey's Anatomy is actually a book? It's the title of a book from around this time. Really? Is it is it just as long and boring as the show? <laughs> Sorry, I'm really calling it out. <laughs> what I would give for an audition. Uh, okay. Even as a pupil, Ferguson displayed the manual dexterity for which he was so remarkable in afterlife. I presume they mean like after this part of his life, not the afterlife. Oh, wow. Okay. So I was going to say, I was like, is, is he with the sorcerer? What's what's happening? How do we know about this? <laughs> what is it about Preston Pants? <laughs> and this quality attracted the attention of his great teacher, Robert Knox, mm. who sought and secured his services as demonstrator of anatomy. Whoa. Demonstrator of anatomy. They're not doctors. They are people who, you know, in lecture halls, cut apart a body and present the anatomy and teach people about it. Whoa, wait. Okay. So they would cut apart in class. They cut apart a body. So you walk in and there's a cadaver or human on the table dead and mm-hmm. you sit down mm-hmm. and you're like, oh, what are you doing after class? Whatever. And the, that dead body's there. And then someone goes, hello, let's cut it up and talk about it. Absolutely. It was also absurdly popular. People were very interested in attending these dissections. Oh, whoa. Okay. Nasty. Nothing to do. Go see the dead body get cut up. I guess the Victorians were obsessed with progress and enlightenment Hmm. and science. And so when, you know, when there were advancements to be made in the human body, they're like, we got to head down and and see what uh, parts 
get removed. <laughs> I feel like you'd be front row. Hundred <laughs> percent. You guys, the yeah. cadaver, the cadaver would be like, oh, here goes Paul. <laughs> I'd be in the splatter zone, Stacy. Yeah. All right. We're getting to my favorite part here. Those were the days before the passing of Warburton's Anatomy Act, when teachers were dependent upon the so-called resurrection men for a supply of subjects. And soon after the commencement of Ferguson's career as a demonstrator, the storm caused by the discovery of the murders perpetrated by Burke and Hare burst upon the Edinburgh School. Knox was compelled to fly for his life, but his more fortunate assistant succeeded in passing through the trouble of the time unscathed. Holy crap, that's like... You know when you're listening and your brain's like, it's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. That was a lot of information to stick in one paragraph without any context. Yeah, this, this is like how I speak. Now I'm hearing it back and it's a lot. Okay, so... Yes. What are they talking about? Yeah. Warburton's Anatomy Act. Before 1832, the Murder Act of 1752 <laughs> stipulated that only the corpses of executed murderers could be used for dissection. Ah, uh, okay. Yep. Okay, but executions were on the decline, and dissections in schools were on the rise because of their oh. absurd popularity. So because bodies became so scarce, a cottage industry grew, uh, and that was the industry of resurrection men, grave robbers, who would rob the graves of newly buried bodies and sell them under the table, so to speak, for practicing dissections. Oh my god. This became such a problem that if a member of the family died, there would be another member of the family that would sit with the body overnight to keep it from getting robbed before its burial. I mean, it's like a bicycle today. You need to. <laughs> it's in Toronto. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So that's wild. Enter William Hare, an mm. Irishman who'd wandered through several occupations before running a lodging house where he lived with his <laughs> wife, Margaret. That's like when you're on The Bachelor and they're like, I'm self employed. And you're like, sure you are. Sure you are, Lance M. <laughs> <laughs> There he met another lodger and a fellow Irishman named William Burke. So this is Burke and Hare. All right. These two guys became friends or at least acquaintances. In 1829, uh, an old pensioner in the lodging house died before he paid uh, his final rent. And William Hare was angry that the deceased still owed him rent. So he decided he was going to steal the corpse from its coffin and sell it to make back the money that the dead person owed him. Wow. He got William Burke to help him, and together they stole the body and brought it to Dr. Robert Knox. Robert Knox, if you remember back to earlier in the paragraph, the doctor who brought William Ferguson on as his assistant. He was a very highly skilled anatomist whose gruesome and flamboyant private lectures grew so popular (laughs) that he had to take on three assistants. Do you think anyone will describe us when we pass as cool as this stuff? Like, like just the like flamboyant lectures. Like when we go, it'll be like, he was here, he tried, we'll miss him. So Robert Knox buys the body for seven pounds and 10 shillings. So that's it. What's what's that? What what is that converted to? I didn't even try. I, Paul. I, it's so hard to know. If rent is four pounds and he made seven pounds and 10 shillings, that's twice the value of right. rent in, in your lodging house. So this is a good deal for William Hare. Mm. So they made a profit. And following that, 
transaction, Hare and Burke took things to another level. Aided by their wives, Burke and Hare took lodgers in, got them drunk, and then smothered them to death, apparently by pressing a foot down on the chest in order to leave no physical evidence of violence, and they would sell the bodies. So instead of robbing graves, they started killing. They started killing to make money by selling bodies to anatomists. Wow. Okay. I mean, this is nuts. I mean, the to murder just for four shillings or whatever. I mean, in the in the the foot on the chest. I know. So over the next 12 months, they killed 16 people this way and sold the bodies to Robert Knox, the the same doctor every time. Whoa. They were finally caught. And when they were arrested, William Hare and his wife, Margaret, turned King's evidence, which is like state's evidence, but fancier, and testified against Burke in exchange for immunity. So the guy who thought it up, who came up with the idea... Flipped. Flipped on his friend. What a jerk. Damn. Can you believe? And I bet you it was the wife's idea because women get it and we know and we're going to emotionally manipulate. And that's exactly what I would do. I'd be like, it wasn't you. We got to flip. Burke was convicted, hanged, and, wait for it, dissected. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, what, what to be in that class. You know, right. Oh, the news when the news broke for those students. (laughs) So uh, Robert Knox, the uh, the anatomist who bought the bodies, he was never prosecuted, but his uh, lived the rest of his life in disgrace. He lost his job. His career was practically destroyed. Did he know that it was like underground murder bodies? And he was just like, I need this because I'm popular. This is my thing. Yes, he needed to keep his show going, right? Yeah. And he insisted that he didn't know they would have been murdered. But how can you not, when the same guys turn up with bodies in the exact same condition, with no actual physical evidence of death anywhere, like usually when there's a dead body, you could, you know, at least in one of the cases, you might be able to look at it and say, oh, I see how he died there, a blunt force trauma to the face or whatever, right? Right. Um, So he must have known. He must have known. He thought ignorance was bliss, and then it wasn't. So that, that's a detour, but that's the story of William Ferguson's first teacher. <laughs> that's how he got into the business. It's a disgraced, body-murdering... Yeah. yeah, okay. We love yeah. that. Maybe played by, like, Tommy Lee Jones or something. Or John Malkovich, maybe? Ooh, John Malkovich, way better. You can tell how we grew up. It was different. <laughs> like... <laughs> Back to the life of William Ferguson. Ferguson taught anatomy with great earnestness for many years, but he constantly looked forward to surgery as his eventual calling. He was appointed surgeon to the Royal Public Dispensary, Mm. the first free-of-charge hospital in Scotland. That's nice. Where he soon became noted for his skill and dexterity as an operator. This is essentially why we're talking about him, because he wasn't just skilled, he was fast and nimble with his fingers. Really? Yeah. Hello, hello, okay. Upon the removal of Mr. Liston to London, we're talking about famous surgeon Robert Liston, he was left with no rival in his own department excepting Mr. Syme, and that's uh, James Syme, who was Ferguson's primary competition. Really? In 1836, Ferguson became surgeon to the Royal Infirmary. And in 1840, when King's College Hospital was established in London, 
the council not unnaturally turned their eyes northward and made proposals to Ferguson. <laughs> After some negotiation, he accepted the post of surgeon to the hospital and the professorship and settled in Dover Street. Dover Street, Whoa. nice part of town, fancy street okay. at the west end of London. Ooh, she she wee wee. Having no professional following, and with the expenses of a family pressing upon him, Ferguson, like others, found the road to success a steep and difficult one. And it was only the possession of some private fortune through his wife which enabled him to hold his ground. And that is the only mention his wife will receive in this book. I, w I was going to say, I was like, man, they are, okay, so for so much floral descriptive language, we've jumped over... After a few negotiations, it's like, hold on, what are we negotiating? And yeah, he had a wife. Except for like when they talked about him and Knox, it was like, love at first sight. He had seen his instructor for the first time and he had this woman, but she couldn't vote. So she was there. That is the tone of this book. But I looked up who his wife was. Yes. His wife was Helen Hamilton Rankin, daughter and heiress of William Rankin of Spittlehaw Peopleshire. Okay, wow, wow, wow. What was she like? Rich? Uh, old money, Stacy. Ooh, love. I couldn't find anything else about her except that she had a huge family estate. Huge. Really? Oh, yeah, it's gorgeous. Damn. The old money in this time? I understand, reading this book, why mm. rich, white conservatives don't want the world to change. Because in their DNA... Yeah is centuries of holding on to fantastic fortunes. And the narrative of this book treats the world as having been built and run for them. Just a few people. Of course. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, yeah. But there is something about like the idea when you think of like old money, you know, like that's like endless amounts. It's just so like extravagant, like extravagant. And then you hear like new money and you're like, ugh. <laughs> Even though I have no money. <laughs> I come from no money. I come from no money. All right. So before long, however, medical practitioners began to flock to King's College Hospital in order to witness his performance of operations with a mm. dexterity equal to that of Liston and with a certain finish and carefulness which Liston had never displayed. What does that mean? Just botching up the stitch job? <laughs> This is a good time to take a little rundown of what surgery was like in the middle mm. of the 19th century. Oh, yeah. This is what I want to know. One of my favorite things is the concept that since doctors didn't handle tools, would just come and inspect your overall health and give recommendations, they were considered gentlemen. And they would be invited to dinner with rich lords and families. Mm. And they would be almost part of, you know, part of the family in a way. Like in Downton Abbey, you know, you see the doctor every once in a while, right. like dining with everybody. Surgeons, however, because surgeons handled tools, they were considered tradesmen. And so of a different class. I can't, I mean, okay. Yeah. Surgery was a horrific uh, experience. On Oof. an average, there was a one in four chance that you would not survive. Uh, this was mostly due to infections after your surgery. The concept of germs or bacteria was unknown at the time. So surgeons didn't wash their hands before or between surgeries. They figured, why, if they're just going to get dirty again, why am I going to wash them? Oh. Nor did they wash their tools. So they'd Oof. be walking in to a surgery with somebody else's blood on their knives. 
Oof. Okay. Well, yeah, they're tradesmen. Okay. They're, they're tradesmen. <laughs> <laughs> I love tradesmen. They're so rich, Paul. Honestly, oh we should God. become plumbers. Truly. But I will say this. My dad's a tradesman. He is a glazer, so he does glass work. I always remember growing up, my dad would always talk about the elevator tradesmen because they were the ones that made so much money and they kind of run the construction zone because they can help you go up and down. So he would have to buy them gifts to ensure top priority. Isn't that kind of cool? Elevator you men. You always have to treat the people who control your destiny well. Yeah, my dad always had like bottles of booze and stuff for them. Oh, that's, that's, I like that a lot. That's I know. I love, I love knowing the inner workings of, uh, of different groups. But anyways, mm -hmm. the elevator technicians, if you see one, they rich. Okay. We were talking about how awful it was to receive an operation. They would not wash their hands. They would not wash their tools. And like I said, there were spectators. People in the Victorian age were fascinated by this sort of thing. And they would come to observe a surgery for entertainment, not just the dissections. They would come to actual surgeries. Just like there's a surgery happening at King's College Hospital. Do you want to go watch? It's like Seinfeld with the junior mints. Worst of all, and this is the part that made, I was telling this story to my kid, and this is, this is the part that made him get up and walk out of the room. Oh, I can't wait. There was no anesthetic. What? They were awake? No, they got them drunk or something. No, no, they were just awake. Paul, there's no way. What do you mean? Like, they would just start cut, like I'd be like, oh, hey, did you hear about elevator tradesmen? And they would just start cutting into my stomach? <laughs> yes. There's no way. We're gonna take a very quick break and then we're gonna get right back into this graphic description of surgery back in the day. We're also gonna find out why exactly Robert Liston is getting a bit of shade in this book. Could it be because he was a bit of a maniac? Find out after this brief but necessary break. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. We're back. Now, if you recall, we were talking about the experience of going under the knife in the mid-1800s and also one of the most famous surgeons of the time, Robert Liston. We're going to jump right back in where we left off. It's a crazy story. Let's get back to it with Stacy McGonigal. If you had a broken leg, you'd be lying on a table. The assistants would come in and hold you down. Then the doctor would come in and get to work. People would scream, beg you to stop. They would, you know, try to escape. A lot of people would just refuse to do it. And so this is where Robert Liston comes in. Robert Liston okay. was known as the fastest knife in the West End because <laughs> it was okay. not so much important about doing your surgery accurately. It was more important to do it quickly. Robert Liston would come in, take off his coat and call to the gallery, time me, gentlemen, time no. me. He is said to have been able to amputate a leg in two and a half minutes. 
while the assistants held down the patient, he would take his knife out, start cutting below the knee. Then he would put the knife between his teeth, grab the saw, and just start sawing while the patient was fully conscious. I can't. Oh. So why does this book throw shade? They said... (laughs) A certain finish and carefulness, which Liston had never displayed. Because Liston was so fast that he made his share of mistakes. Of course. And some of the highlights. Yes. Once when amputating a man's leg, he accidentally also cut off the testicles. Oh! Oh! No! No, he... Oh! Most famous one, and this could be an (laughs) apocryphal story, was that he was working so quickly that he accidentally cut off his own assistant's fingers. (laughs) I mean, yeah. And then accidentally slashed through an observer's clothing. The observer died of a heart attack. The assistant died of infection. So did the patient... It was the only known operation to have a 300% mortality rate. Oh my god, that's insane. Like, not to laugh because people lost their life, but just like, so I just imagine it's like, ah, woo, woo, woo. <laughs> like everyone, <laughs> yeah, what a you can't hear it. This is an audio episode, but I really went for it. But <laughs> I saw just... it and I bought it. I saw the whole scene, the whole vignette. And he's the only one who survived with like a rotted, bloody axe. (laughs) Whoopsies. Can you just imagine there's blood everywhere? And he's like, stop the clock, gentlemen. (laughs) 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 Just everyone's dead. (laughs) So this is why Sir William Ferguson is famous. It's because he was that fast, but also much more dexterous in that he didn't get things wrong like that. Right. Ferguson soon found himself almost without a rival in London in his own department of the profession. He was fully equal to the position in which he was placed and rose rapidly in the estimation of the public. Okay, this is interesting, because do you know any famous doctors? Like, there are doctors on TV, which is like, oh, you have to see that doctor, and that doctor has a whole right. show. But the fact that there was a guy whose estimation was was high in the public's eye, like, have you heard that William Ferguson operated on? Yeah, no. The fact that he was like some sort of celebrity doctor is a weird concept to me. It's a weird one, but is it like it's so crazy that we're just like, well, Kim Kardashian must be famous, but wouldn't it be weird if doctors were? (laughs) That's fair. My mom had a big surgery a few years ago, and uh, I immediately distrust the doctor. And then I Mm -hmm. look him up and I'm like, oh, he's one of the world's greatest doctors. Oh, really? Yeah. And I was just like, oh, this is amazing. We're very lucky. But it would be cool if these people were actually famous for what they did. A hundred percent. Yeah. Outside of the professional circles, they're anonymous now. Damn. His fine, handsome person and winning manners were passports to the confidence of his patients. How important, Stacey, to you is it that your doctor or surgeon is a handsome person with winning manners? Listen, this is the perfect person to ask. And I will tell you, I I love manners, but there'd be something about just having like a really hot doctor. (laughs) I'd be like, well, um, my butt's being naughty. (laughs) (laughs) 
okay. His fine winning manners, yeah, confidence of patience, and his unhesitating, here we go, his unhesitating adoption of ether and chloroform as soon as these agents were introduced into practice not only enabled oh, yes. him to accomplish more than had been possible to his predecessors, but to do this without the infliction of pain. So finally... In 1846, ether is first used as an anesthetic. It was a huge deal. Mm. Everyone was so excited. Before that, here's something I didn't know. Ether was used as a recreational high by the aristocracy when they would throw ether frolics. (laughs) See, even like freaking raves back in the Victorian time, they're like, we freaking ether, ether frolics? (laughs) Yeah. I like to imagine there was just it was just pumped in through a vent into a room. Yeah, and they were just like goodbye. Ether, however, was explosive and could induce vomiting. Now, explosive ether is not great in an environment where they're using gaslight for their operation room lighting, so they had to switch it up. Ooh. Chloroform became commonly used in the late 1840s and early 1850s, especially after Queen Victoria had it administered during labor. Oh, we love a queen who goes, give me something. Mm-hmm. I need any, knock me out. A powerful hand rendered him especially fitted to deal with large and formidable tumors in a way which Ooh. had never been attempted. And at the same time, his refinement of touch gave him great advantages <laughs> in the performance of more <laughs> delicate operations, Ooh. among which those for the cure of deformities of the mouth, such as hair lip and cleft palate, were particularly remarkable for the improvements which he introduced and for the increased success which attended them. So yeah, he did a lot of hair lip, cleft palates. He also did mm. a lot of bladder stones. He used to break up a lot of bladder stones. Oof, that's tough. Imperforate anuses. Pardon me? <laughs> <laughs> that's when a baby's um, but uh, anus isn't fully developed. Ah, uh, yes, yes, yes. Can't poop properly. And you got to mm. cut that butt open. Yep. Get it open. Operated on a lot of babies' butts. Oh. His greatest surgical work, however, was in the treatment of diseased joints and generally in the treatment which he called by the apt name of conservative surgery. To him is almost entirely due the modern practice of removing the actual disease of a joint only in cases which, before his time, would have been treated by amputation of the whole of the affected limb. So, William Ferguson had the novel idea that maybe you could just deal with the diseased part instead of removing the entire part of the body he would isn't it wild that it was just one doctor who was like hey let me think this is a lot what we're doing like isn't it like liston just killed that poor woman coming to watch do you think we could pump the brakes only him you know it just takes one huh this was a big development in the time of surgery because going into surgery i guess at the time meant i guess i got to kiss goodbye one of these legs or one of these arms So he was able to move science forward in that regard and make surgery a more humane practice. Oh, my God. Thank goodness. Mm -hmm. His nimble fingies. Yes. In 1843, Ferguson was elected a fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons of England. Mm. And soon afterwards, a fellow of the Royal Society. Here's an interesting thing about the Royal College of Surgeons. It's a professional body which has existed since the 14th century... Mm. Although in the 1500s, it was called the Company of Barber Surgeons before the surgeons broke away from the barbers in a rift that has never been mended. (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, it didn't. It doesn't have as much, um, you know, ooh la la in the name. Um, so I'm glad that it went through a rebranding, which we all have to. We all have to reassess once in a while. I'm, I'm sorry, Barbers. We, we respect you too, but it's different. Because Barbers still <laughs> operated as dentists at the time. Oof. So like surgery is this weird side hustle that anybody could get into at the time. Oh, I was yeah. trying to figure out what it was like to be a doctor in the 1840s. According to a census in 1841, there were over 33,000 people practicing one or more branches of medicine in England. Mm. And it was kind of like Uber. It's not your main thing. It's just like, yes, I'm also a wow. surgeon. I'll come and take care of that for you. You don't want a surgeon being like that. Like, I'll paint your house, but also if you have like tuberculosis, I can cut your leg off. <laughs> but it's also like you have a doctor and he's like, okay, um, you know, we're going to get you right and tight. You know, uh, we're going to deal with this. We're just going to have the surgeon come in and it's like some burly lumberjack covered in blood. He's like, where's the leg? <laughs> it's like, wait, we don't know him. <laughs> In 1855, he was appointed Surgeon Extraordinary. Yeah, well, there you go. That's like Sorcerer Supreme. Yeah, it's like that award Tom Cruise got from Scientology. Where it was like, <laughs> best cool man of the world. <laughs> you got to give him something. Level nine pyramid boy. Congratulations. <laughs> Level nine pyramid boy. <laughs> and in 1867, he became Sergeant Surgeon to the Queen. Oh, yeah. 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 So, Surgeon to the Queen. So he. He rocketed it up there. I searched far and wide for a meaning of what it meant to be surgeon extraordinary. I couldn't find it. You know, I think it was the queen trying to butter him up. We'll give him a little award and then we'll have him at my beck and call. Let's call him extraordinary. You know, you guys figure it out. What made up title would you like to get? <laughs> Me? Yeah. Oh, my God. That's like actually such a good question. I don't I'm gonna have to sit with that. Do you have one? If someone just endowed me with great guy, I think that'd be fun. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> doesn't make it weird ever, person. <laughs> Hot with personality, lady. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. And you can sign your emails with it. It's a plaque on your wall. Yeah. Looks like she could afford a car, girl, you know? <laughs> visibly doing well. <laughs> yeah, visibly. Yeah. As a surgeon, Sir William Ferguson was both enterprising and cautious. His perfect self-possession in the most trying emergencies has more than once converted into a surgical triumph what might in other hands have been a catastrophe. Damn. <laughs> kind of heart and ready to help all who were in need, he was endeared to his many pupils and friends. And, fond okay. of society, he acted Ugh. the host both in George Street and at his Scottish home in Peebleshire, his wife's oh. awesome estate, with geniality and genuine hospitality. He died at his house in George Street on February 10th, 1877, after nearly a 12 months illness at the age of 69. Doctor, heal thyself. I added that last Whoa. part in. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, like, first of all, 69. But also, um, <laughs> like, okay, he was a really great doctor and he really advanced medicine. But it's just kind of like, well, what was he like as a person? Like, right now he's very Captain America, which is kind of like, you know, like, what was he into? Was he like, you know, 
into animals? Did he did he like gardening? Was he a good husband? Was he a philanderer? Ah, good question. Um, I didn't see much in the way of his hobbies or his personal life at home. But I did get the feeling from everything I read that he was a very well-liked guy who would make his patients feel at ease before and and while he did his surgery. So that's really nice. I think he was the kindly Scottish doctor who would Ugh. come in, get to the point, say, we're just going to do a little thing here and I love that. And get it done so quickly. And again, I keep coming back to this idea of the practicality of surgery at the time, because not only did you have to be quick and mm-hmm. precise, but you really had to know the human body. Uh, you had to have it memorized. You had to know it like a mechanic knows a car or a right. plumber knows pipes. You had to come in and say, I know exactly what to do with your body right now based on its inner workings. You know what I mean? I mean, it's so it's so impressive. And it's really, you know, it is really nice to hear like the bedside manner of it, too, because it's like it just seemed so gnarly, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, oh, my God. Ugh. Yeah. And oh, no computer, yeah. no, you know. No specializing, a general surgeon. Like now, he's like, okay, you you have a tumor in your neck, oh, yeah. we're going to send you to our neck doctor, you know. Um, but can you imagine someone's like, hey, Greg's going into medicine. Yeah, he's really specializing on the neck. He's a neck guy. <laughs> I think this is what I think about surgery these days. It's like, I, I would assume that med students are like, I need to get into something that nobody else does so that I can be a very, very successful doctor. I'm never going to compete with the lung guys. I got to get into, I don't know, the back of the knee. The knee, isn't the knee still like, isn't the knee like the mythical beast? No one knows a lot about the knee. No, but have you ever gone to the doctor like my knee and they're like, it could be, it could be a million things. And you're like, but it hurts. They're like, it could be your hamstring. We don't know. Right. As my acupuncturist slash... Shiatsu masseuse Stephanie always says it's a complex muscle group. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I love how you're pretending you don't have money. My uh, shiatsu masseuse um, (laughs) often says, if I may. uh, (laughs) My shiatsu (laughs) (laughs) You know Stephanie. (laughs) Stephanie, stunning acupuncturist. Uh, She's married to Greg, the neck guy. You know him. He's just just next um, power couple. <laughs> okay, my question to you is: If you lived in yes. this time, if you were up yeah. for surgery, would you just be oh, like, God. "No, I'm not doing it," or would you like, would you suck it up and 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 go in and do it? Listen, I'm gonna suck it up. Suck it up and just live with it, or suck it up and get the surgery. I'm living with it. Living with There's it. There's no way I'm I'm losing anything. You know. Um, the idea of being strapped down makes me want to just viscerally cry thinking about it and just hoping for the best. And I know my luck in the Victorian time based on who I am and the karma that I bring, I would not be getting, I'd be getting Liston half cut (laughs) (laughs) during his lunch break as a favor, you know, (laughs) would you? I agree with you. I would be like, You know, I think I'll take my chances. Thanks a lot. And here's why. I did some further reading uh, because I wanted to know an account of some of William Ferguson's surgeries. And bear in mind, he's considered the last and greatest, you know, practical surgeon of his time. And here's what I found. So 
It's from somebody else's document from the 1800s. At 23 years of age, he operated on a newborn male child with an imperforate anus. Okay, it was a success. And the boy lived six years and four months after the operation, apparently dying from complications of measles. No! Ferguson was only 23 years of age when he ligatured the third part of the subclavian artery for an auxiliary aneurysm in a man of 60 years. This was only the third occasion on which the artery had been ligatured in Scotland. The man lived four years dying from cold and exposure in a field near Kelso. (laughs) Oh my God. And then, oh yeah, he did a dramatic operation on Helen Henderson, aged seven years, who had a plum stone in her respiratory tract for some months. He was able to remove that stone and saved her life. And she died three months after from swelling of mucosa of the larynx after a cold caught gadding round a kind of exhibition. I mean, life was hard. I mean, you choke on a plum, you live, and then guess what? You're getting the flu. Yeah. If you get surgery, there's still a good chance that four months later, you're just going to get a sniffle and die. Someone just died being outside. The artery is saved, but man, it was chilly and, and he's gone. Honestly thought it was the aneurysm that was going to get me, but it's this damp Scottish weather. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. It can't be overstated that, you know, when you think about the condition of our lives, uh-huh. there is maybe with the exception of 2019, because that's before the pandemic, but there really is no better time to be alive, given the fact that oh. we can actually take care of our medical problems. We can take care of our medical problems. Also, the takeaway for me is you can be really great at your job, but what you'll be known for is how you were as a person. Like what's going down in history is he was an incredible doctor, but what's being pushed forward was mm-hmm. that he was compassionate and that he cared. You know, so it's like when we think yeah. like career first, uh, I'm, I'm not here to make friends. It's like maybe you should make a few because <laughs> when they write the book, but it's like, you know, yeah. he was remembered fondly. We appreciate Well enough likes to get in a book. And that's all we want. That's all we want, to be remembered well and forever. Yeah, so if you want to write about Paul or I, you can contact us on our Instagram. I'm going to talk to Paul about pumping up his Instagram. Maybe we'll get some model shots going, you know? This is great, (laughs) yes. Yes, we're going to amplify each other. we got to amplify. we got to put it out there, you know? If we don't, who will? My thanks to Stacy for joining me on this podcast. Stacy McGonigal is on Twitter and Instagram at thestacymcg. She produces a lot of digital content, including podcasts. You can hear her on The Regulars Podcast, as well as The Table with Stacy and Patrick. Next episode, we've all played SimCity. You slowly build your utopia just the way you want it, and then you get bored and uh, you wait for a tornado to come and destroy it. Well, we're going to read about a guy who was so rich, he did all that in real life. Except for the tornado part. Find out all about him in Chapter 9, Sir Titus Salt of Saltaire. The Dubious Book of Famous Deeds is produced and recorded in Toronto. It's part of the Sonar Network. Go to thesonarnetwork.com and check out the many funny and thoughtful podcasts offered there. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave me a review. It goes a long way towards helping this show find its audience. You can subscribe as well so that you never miss an episode. Follow the podcast online at Famous Deeds on Twitter and at Famous.Deeds.
Bates on Instagram. And you can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at BatesBot9000. If you want to get in touch, whether to ask questions, correct my work, lodge a complaint, or just say hi, I want to hear from you. Shoot an email to famousdeeds at gmail.com. And if you'd like to support the work I put into researching and producing this podcast, why not buy me a coffee? You can do so at buymeacoffee.com slash famous.deeds. It's an easy way to support creators all over the internet. Until next time, I'm Paul Bates. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been brought to you by the Sonar Network. Sonar! Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, where even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.